Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to talk a little bit about conference, prophets, maybe some of the things that we liked in sessions that we just saw recently. Speaking of conference, you know, there's so many things that are rushing to my mind. I just, I, I want to go back to um, Helaman. Do you remember where Nephi and Lehi go down to preach to the Lamanites? The Lamanites have conquered their cities, and Moroniah could only get about half of the land back. And so Nephi says, well, let's go preach. And so he, gets, he goes down and he preaches to the Lamanites, and they throw him in jail, and they come to do harm. And then while they come to do harm, the Lord comes down and encircles Nephi and Lehi with fire. And then a shadow of darkness comes over everyone else. And I just think this is such a symbolic moment in my eyes. This is the prophet is encircled in light, and everyone else in the room is in a shadow of, in a shadow of darkness, and they're afraid. And they're asking, what do we do? Well, I love this moment. If you follow, want to follow along, I'm in Helaman chapter 5, verse 23, they were encircled about as if by fire. 24, their hearts did take courage. And then verse 28, the crowd that came to do them harm were overshadowed in a cloud of darkness, and an awful solemn fear came upon them. If any of you are feeling that awful, solemn fear that has come upon you because of this pandemic, I'm guessing you had the same experience I had with General Conference. Now look at verse 36. So here's the people in the jail, overshadowed by a cloud of darkness, and an awful, solemn fear comes upon them. And yet look at verse 36, one of the most beautiful moments in the Book of Mormon. It came to pass that he turned him about, and he saw through the cloud of darkness the faces of Nephi and Lehi, and they did shine exceedingly. To me, that was my conference experience. In the middle of a pandemic, when everyone's, you know, they're supposed to stay at home, we can't go to the temples, missionaries are being called home by the thousands, we're working from home, we can't go to the grocery store very often, can't eat in restaurants, can't go to a movie theater. My children have been struck by this awful, solemn fear, and there seems to be this awful fear that's floating upon all of us. General Conference was 536 come true, that I saw through the cloud of darkness the face of Russell M. Nelson, and his countenance did shine exceedingly. And there came a hope of the future, a brightness, sitting there listening to Jeffrey R. Holland say that we should expect greater miracles in the future than we've seen in the past, filled my soul with hope. And through the darkness, the faces of the prophets, seers, and revelators came shining through, and they calmed the fear. I hope that's what happened to you as you watched General Conference. I, I turned General Conference off, filled with light and hope, and everything's going to be okay. And I think that's one of the main roles of a prophet, is in the darkness, 
when we are overshadowed with a cloud of darkness and awful solemn fear comes upon us, look to the prophet because his face will shine through the darkness. His face will shine exceedingly. And why is that? Verse 36, Nephi and Lehi had lifted their eyes to heaven. And that's what Russell Nelson does. His eyes are on heaven. So our eyes can be on him. And if we accept what he says with patience and faith, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. I think we're going to see something come of this fast that he called for and that an awful solemn fear has gripped the earth. Well, his eyes are on heaven, so our eyes are on him, and there's a calm that comes. I just think that's significant. That describes my experience with conference, Mike. We get some missionaries who write us. Several of them have said that this has caused their investigators to really ask the the real questions. For a lot of people, millions of people just out of work. And so what are they doing? Well, we're thinking about things. We're with our family. We're thinking about what really matters. And so sometimes, I don't know if you had this experience on your mission in Mexico City. I did on mine where sometimes people were just too busy. Yeah. And we're not as busy now. We're thinking about some things. I loved conference. I really like this quote. And this is, uh, he's not a member of the church, but this is just a great quote. How prophets are people that God has called to do his work. We see this over and over again in the scriptures where prophets are given objectives and they accomplish them, and yet they're still people. Uh, I, I call this the gold and clay principle. And the principle is essentially this, that prophets can speak for God, they can be in the heavens and they can have visions, and yet at the same time, God leaves them as as human beings. And I like this principle because it applies to prophets, but it also applies to Scripture, and it also applies to um, local leaders and, and our relationships with each other, because there's humanity and divinity in all of these things. And so this is by J.R. Dumelo, and it's a little lengthy, so bear with me. First, in the Bible, the divine and human are blended. We must not regard the Bible as an absolutely perfect book in which God is himself the author using human hands and brains only as a man might use a typewriter. God used men, not machines. Men with weakness and prejudice and passion as ourselves, though purified and ennobled by the influence of his Holy Spirit, men each with his own peculiarities of manner and disposition, each with his own education or want of education, each with his own way of looking at things, each influenced differently from one another by the different experiences and disciplines of his life. Their inspiration did not involve a suspension of their natural faculties. It did not destroy their personality, nor abolish the differences of training and character. It did not even make them perfectly free from earthly passion. It did not make them into machines. It left them men. We must learn that the divine is mingled with the human. We cannot draw a line between the divine and the human. We cannot say of any part, this is divine and that is human. It is as a mine of precious ore, where gold is mingled with rock and clay. The ore is richer in one part than another, but all parts in some degrees are glittering with gold. It is as sunlight through a painted window. The light must come to us colored by the medium. We cannot get it any other way. In some parts, the medium is denser and more imperfect. In others, the golden glory comes dazzlingly through. It is foolish to ignore the existence of the human medium through which the light has come. It is still more foolish to ignore the divine light and think that the tinted dome is luminous itself, that the light of heaven has only come from earth. 
Both must be kept in mind, the divine and the human, if the Bible is to be rightly understood. And I really like that, Bryce, because to me, that quote by Dumelow says so much. It says who prophets are, but it speaks to me what scripture is. And I think sometimes, you know, we live in a world where people will cherry pick something that maybe Brigham Young said or did or Joseph Smith said or did, and they say, aha, there's the humanity, or how could he, how could a prophet be that way? And I really like how it points out, well, what's your expectation of a prophet? And how can a prophet be both gold and clay? And so I wanted to start off with that and just say that the restoration is ongoing, that there's still more light to come. Right. And I want to talk about that role of being the prophet and the seer. What is the divine in them? What is a realistic expectation for the prophet in our life? And I I want to turn to Enoch. If you'll turn with me to the book of Mo, uh, Moses and the Pearl of Great Price, when Enoch is called as a prophet, I think this to me tells me what that role is. What is it that I expect from him? And I, I'm totally okay with the word prophet. I know that's kind of, you know, in conference we said we're going to hear from our beloved prophet, and President Nelson is our prophet. But that's not the Lord, the word the Lord began with. When he first called Joseph Smith one of those titles, it wasn't prophet. It was a different word. And so let me see if I can introduce this. This is the calling of Enoch, and let me point out why we need a prophet, why we need Enoch, and why do we need Russell Nelson. In Moses chapter 6, verse 27, here's how we are broken. Here's the human side of us that's broken. A, our hearts are waxed hard. B, our ears are dull of hearing. And then at the very end of verse 27, it says, our eyes cannot see afar off. And that's our problem. Our, our hearts are waxed hard, our ears are dull of hearing, and our eyes cannot see afar off. We only see what's right in front of us. So to counter that, the Lord says, look, I'm going to call a prophet. And he calls Enoch. And then in verse 35, he says, anoint thine eyes with clay and wash them. And this beautiful phrase, and thou shalt see. And I love the symbolism. Wash the world out of your eyes, Enoch. Wash the world out of your eyes, and you will see. So he washes his eyes with clay, and he sees. Now, verse 36, what does he see? What is it that Russell Nelson sees? What is it that the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve see? He beheld things which were not visible to the natural eye. And that's the point. He sees what you and I don't see. And because of that, at the end of verse 36, the Lord uses a very specific word. He is a seer. So let's drop one word, and we'll, or one letter, and we'll call him a seer. Russell Nelson is a seer. We have 15 seers on earth, and they see. They see what you and I don't see. Unfortunately, look at verse 37. Because I don't see what they see... Many men were offended because of Enoch. And they started, verse 38, they started to say, A strange thing is happening in the land. A wild man hath come upon us. And because we don't see what they see, sometimes we turn away from them. But that's the role of a prophet. Now, carry that idea back to the Book of Mormon. If you go to Mosiah chapter 8, this is where Ammon, not chop your arms off Ammon, different Ammon. Ammon was sent by King Mosiah to find Zenith's group who left and went to the land of Nephi, and he finds Limhi, Zenith's grandson. And they're talking about the fact that they found this stone when they were trying to get back to Zarahemla, 
and the stone is written in a different language. Is there anyone back in, in Zarahemla who can translate? Ammon says in verse 13, Mosiah 8, 13, yes, there's a man that has a Urim and Thummim. He has interpreters, and he can look and see, and the same is called a seer. And then the king, King Lamoni, says, a seer is greater than a prophet. And then Ammon corrects it and says, no, 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 a seer is a prophet and a revelator. And those are the three words that we use interchangeably, prophet, seer, and revelator. But I love to emphasize the word seer. Their job is to see. Now, verse 17, what do prophets see? Here's a beautiful list. They see, number one, things that are past. They see the past clearly. Now, I can see the past, but they see the past in a way I can't see the past. I love when David B. Haight was taken back and shown things in the Savior's day, actual scenes from the Savior's life. He saw the past. I think maybe, Bryce, one way to see the past is to see things with a spiritual eye. There's the scientific answer, but what's the spiritual meaning? So, for example, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner wrote a book called Guns, Germs, and Steel, the question he's trying to answer is, why were the people in the Americas decimated? Why did Europe come to the Americas and decimate them? His answer to the question is different than Nephi's answer. And his answer was, well, they weren't immune to smallpox and the measles. And they didn't have the grain. He goes chapter upon chapter about the grains that they weren't able to cultivate. You know, Nephi's response is, well, they rejected the Holy One of Israel. They were scattered, smitten, and slain. And I think both answers can be true. I think we can see with our natural eyes that we can read guns, germs, and steel and say, okay, here are the scientific reasons for what happened. But a seer can say... Here were God's purposes. Here, yeah. There's so many times when Joseph says, the, the eyes of our understandings were opened, or our spiritual eyes were touched, right? When he and Sidney Rigdon see the degrees of glory, he says that the Lord touched their spiritual eyes. And I think that's another way to be a seer is like, okay, there's the scientific answer, but what's the spiritual meaning or, or definition or understanding? I just I, I wanted to just share that because I think, I think there's, there's something to that, right? Yeah, and I, it reminds me of that comment we read back in Jacob that truth is things as they really are. And we have a tendency to see historical interpretations of things, but the prophets see how, things as they really are. And continuing that list, look at verse 17, Mosiah 8, 17. They see things in the past. They, think, they see things which are to come. Now, that's kind of what we think of as a prophet. They prophesy. They see things to come. But I want to notice this verse emphasizes something else. So yes, past, and yes, future. But how many synonyms does it come up with for the next idea? Prophets see the past. Prophets see the future. And then look at this list. They see secret things, hidden things. Things which, which are not known, which shall be made known by them. Things which otherwise could not be known. Now, that's a repetition of that same idea. Yes, they see the past, and yes, they see the future. But what prophets see are secret things, hidden things. What's interesting is section one, knowing the calamities which will come upon the children of man. I gave you a prophet so that he could see those calamities coming. They see secret things. They, that's why we don't have to worry about secret combinations if there's a prophet around, because they can see through the secrets. And prophets will always have us prepared. I believe wholeheartedly, and I know President Nelson in this last conference said, little did I know 
when he called for an, uh, you know, that this would be an, a memorable conference. Little did I know about the pandemic. But I have to think that he saw something coming because he had this church prepared for a home-based church. When did we start making the shift to a home-based study of the gospel? He saw something coming. He must have seen something coming that said, we need to start shifting and doing more and more in our homes. This church was very prepared to make that transition because a prophet had already had that wheel turning. He had to have seen something. Maybe, maybe and I'm going to throw this out there, Bryce, maybe they have overall feelings or tendencies or an overall objective, and maybe everything isn't spelled out. Just a couple thoughts. So Nephi has the vision, and he has this marvelous experience, Nephi does. He has this vision of the tree of life, and it's all shown to him, and the angel says, Nephi, do you know what this is? And Nephi's like, I really want to know the interpretation So maybe Nephi had strong feelings about what he thought it was, but the angel spells it out. And we see this again with the plates, right? Where where the plates go get them, but there's an overall objective, but it's not spelled out. And so this President Benson quote really hits me where President Benson said in 1965, he says, usually the Lord gives us overall objectives to be accomplished and some guidelines we should follow, but he expects us to work out most of the details and methods. The methods and procedures are usually developed through study and prayer and by living so that we can obtain and follow the promptings of the Spirit. I, you know, it, it's going to sound very um, arrogant of me to say, well, this is how prophets get it, because clearly I'm not a prophet. But I think from my reading of the Scriptures, I think sometimes they're given a vision or a, or a feeling, and they go with it, and the Lord wants them to work out the details. We see that with Joseph, right? Where yeah. How many times was Joseph told to do something, and Emma would say, well, how are we going to do it? And he's like, I don't know. We need, to, we need an architect. Well, let's pray for an architect. We've got to build this temple, or we have to move. How are we going to do this? I don't know, but the Lord will provide, and then we roll up our sleeves and we get to work. Right? Yeah. See, clearly, I just, I'm positive that President Nelson felt and knew that we needed to turn to more of a home based. Something's coming. There's danger coming. We need to be prepared to do more at home. He moved the church that direction. We began to figure it out. And then all of a sudden, here comes a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic. And now everything we do is at home. Um, but I really think that's how prophets work, is that they just see danger coming. They get a sense for danger coming, and they warn us. Now, there's a promise given in the Doctrine and Covenants. If you'll turn to section 21 and notice the date of this section, this was given on April 6, 1830. In the very meeting that was the organization of the church, the Lord gave a revelation, not before, not after, during the meeting, as I don't know how the Lord could possibly wave his hands any, la- any more wildly than to say, hey, are you listening? I want to make a point. So right during the meeting, he interrupts the meeting and he gives Joseph this revelation. And he says in verse 4, wherefore, meaning the church, thou shalt give heed unto all his words and commandments, which he shall give unto you as he receiveth them, walking in a hall holiness before me. And I think that was a little... You know, that was for Joseph. Joseph, you need to walk in holiness before me. And the rest of the church, as he walks in holiness before me, I'm going to reveal to him what you need to hear. And then verse 5, for his word ye shall receive as if from mine own mouth in all patience and faith. I'm so intrigued by that phrase. 
Following a prophet requires patience and faith. Patience because we often don't see what they see. Faith because we don't see what they see. We have to follow a prophet in patience and faith. Now, if we do that, verse 6, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And I think one of the great messages of the Book of Mormon, Mike, is that the prophets came in a day of peace. For example, um, Samuel the Lamanite stands up and says, hey, this city's going to be destroyed by fire. If you kick out the righteous, it's going to be destroyed by fire. And that city, Zarahemla, was actually destroyed by fire in Third Nephi. So what happened to the righteous? Clearly, the righteous got out. Um, later on in Third Nephi, he tells the survivors, you survived because you received the prophet. So putting those dots together, I would suggest that a prophet came into the city of Zarahemla and told the righteous to get out. And they got out, and then fire destroys the city of Zarahemla. But here's my question. What was the weather the day the prophet showed up and said, get out of Zarahemla? Probably what was day. the weather when Noah says, get on the boat? Probably another there was no rain in the sky when Noah says, get on the boat. So be a teenager, for example. Let's suppose you get on the boat. Be teenager, be a Noah's son, and you're a teenager, and, and dad says, get on the boat, and there's not a cloud in the sky. So you get on the boat, and you shut the door, and the next morning, what's the first thing you look at? Don't you look at the sky? And what do you do when it's a clear sky? Noah got on the boat seven days before the rain started. So what do you do when you wake up on day two and there's not a cloud in the sky? And you look over the edge and you see your friends playing ball. How many of you get off the boat? How many of you, if you were Naaman and you dip one time in the river and you come up and no leprosy has come off, wouldn't you check your skin after one dip in the river? And if no leprosy has come off, how many of you get out of the river? How many of you get off the boat the next morning when there's no cloud in the sky? How many of you leave Zarahemla because there's no sign of fire? It wasn't until the seventh dip. It wasn't until the seventh day that there was rain. And that number seven seems to suggest complete obedience and trust. And sometimes following a prophet requires patience and face, but I just, I testify the day's going to come where we will see what they saw long before we saw it. In the, in the time when it happens, though, a lot of times what the prophet says is difficult. I think that's why patience and faith is in there. Historically, Bryce, in this section, this is not what the Whitmers were expecting. These were Protestants. Historically, the Protestants rejected a hierarchy. They rejected a government by a head. I mean, that's the definition of hierarchy. You have uh, the, the word archi, the government, hier, hieros, priest, a priestly government. And right here in section 21, the very first day of church, as you mentioned, the Lord says, you're going to be the first elder and you're going to be in charge. Look at what, you know, look what it says in verse uh, 11. You are an elder under his hand. This is the Lord speaking to Oliver. So Oliver, right out of the gate, is told that he's going to be the second, and Joseph's going to be told that he's to be the first elder. Imagine, this is difficult for us, because I think we're just so used to prophets, but historically, imagine you're this 20-something, and the Whitmers are much older than you, they're established, and you say to them, I'm the first elder, and I'm in charge. This went against everything they expected, and so... 
I think sometimes we read these things and we just think that's how it always was. But I think Joseph's heart must have skipped a beat when the Lord told him to say this, because it sounds so presumptuous, doesn't it? Yeah, well, going back just one chapter to section 20, there was a major argument between Joseph and Oliver over one phrase in section 20. Joseph had written in verse 37 that we needed to truly manifest by our works that we have repented. In other words, there's a bar to come into the church and you have to clear the bar. And Oliver did not want that to be the case. And he wrote to Joseph Smith and rebuked him and told him, you know, to remove that. Take it out. Take it out. This is what happened. This is from Joseph's journal. I I believe this is from Joseph's journal. Whilst thus employed in the work appointed to me by Heavenly Father, I received a letter from Oliver Cowdery, the contents of which gave me both sorrow and uneasiness. Not having that letter now in my possession, I cannot, of course, give it here in full, but merely an extract from the more prominent parts, which I can yet and expect long to remember. He wrote to inform me that he had discovered an error in one of the commandments, Book of Doctrine and Covenants, quote, and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the Spirit of Christ. The above quotation, he said, was erroneous and added, I command you in the name of God to erase those words that no priestcraft be amongst us. Oliver didn't understand at that moment what his role was. And I think that that symbolizes sometimes the membership of the church not understanding the role of a prophet and the keys that he holds. The reality is a prophet just sees and responds from inspiration. And so Joseph wrote back, I immediately wrote to him in reply in which I asked him by what authority he took upon him to command me to alter and erase to add to or diminish from a revelation or commandment from Almighty God. I think it's kind of going back to the first vision. I have received, I had seen a vision, and in that vision I saw two personages, and all the persecution in the world can't stop me from saying that I saw two personages. In other words, a prophet says, I have received this from the Lord. And whether you like it or not, Oliver, this is what it needs to say. And I think that's kind of that role that they weren't quite prepared for is what role does the the prophet sees things and we have to receive them with patience and faith. Now, I, I want to make sure people don't misinterpret that. This is not blind faith we have in the prophet. A lot of people confuse that and say, you Mormons, you just follow your prophet blindly. What if he told you to jump off a cliff, you jump off a cliff. It's not blind faith we have in the prophet. It's confirmed faith. Our faith has been confirmed that he receives truth from heaven and that we receive it in patience and faith. Because sometimes we don't see what he sees. We don't know what he knows. And so we receive it in patience and faith. And when we do so, the heavens are opened and the gates of hell do not prevail against us. All those promises that come in section 21. Section 20 and Section 21 definitely were difficult for the Whitmers, and it did cause a split in the church early on. Um, and I can just imagine Joseph feeling this this way. I mean, early on in the church, in Protestant tradition and the way they ran the churches, it was kind of this egalitarian thing. Um, sometimes a meeting would be led by Bryce, and another day a meeting might be led by Mike, and there wasn't really one center authority. And this church, right out of the gate, we have a centralized figure, a very polarizing, magnetic figure in Joseph Smith. And 
coming forth out of this, I can just imagine, like I said, his heart beating going, how am I going to do this? And he just had this faith and trust. And this was difficult for the Whitmers and Oliver. And now Oliver struggles and he comes back and those kinds of things happen. But as I read these historical narratives of the Whitmers and Oliver Cowdery, I think, we're not very different from them. Sometimes the prophet will do or say something that make, will make us stop and, and wonder, and we'll have to do what Bryce says, get on our knees and get a confirmation. And we're all at different levels. And so patience and faith is one of those things. And so wherever you are on the continuum, and there was one individual that really struck me on the General Conference hashtag, where he says, I haven't been to church in 12 years, and I haven't taken the sacrament in, in that many of years, but I'm thinking about doing it, but I've always struggled with these things. And then he had a list of things that he struggled with. And I just thought to myself, you know what? You're not alone. We're all individuals on this journey. And so I like that idea, Bryce, of just getting a, a confirmation of what they're teaching uh, to be true. I do want to share a couple more thoughts just about Old Testament prophets, if I, if I may, for a minute. Uh, this one is this overarching objective of what prophets are from the Old Testament. You have Amos 3.7, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. The word for secret is sowed, and it's counsel. And so out of that comes the 23rd chapter of Jeremiah, where in Jeremiah 23, 21 through 22, those verses, uh, Jeremiah says, I spoke with God in the counsel. A true prophet is one that stands in the council, in the sowed with God, in the, in the presence of the gods. And so from an Old Testament perspective, that was one of the ways that they knew that they were sent from God, is they had a message from the gods in the heavens to man on earth. And so we see this in Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, verse 8, it says, who shall go for us? It's plural. There's divinity, multiple divinities in the heavens, and they say, who's going to go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And in that narrative, Isaiah is one who stands in the council. And we see this in 1 Nephi 1, 5 through 16, where Lehi is brought up into the heavens and he sees one on the throne, and then a book is brought into him by another divinity, and he's given a message. And so sometimes we think that a prophet is kind of like a fortune teller, or he's going to give us the numbers to the lottery winners, or he's going to tell us of all things to come. And in my view of a prophet is more of one who stands as a spokesman. He's a spokesman for divinity, and he's basically to give the message that God has chosen him to give. And so in a, in a way, I want to say that all members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I believe, are invited to be lowercase p prophets, that they're to share the message of, what, of the restoration of the message of Christ and his power to anyone who will listen. And so to you, the listener, every one of you has a circle of influence that you can share some measure of truth. Everybody's different. We're all at different levels, but there's a way that you can share the truth that you know to the people that you know in the way that they can accept it. I really loved the messages. There were a couple times in conference where a couple sisters shared this message where they said, Jesus met people where they are. And I think that's how we're to teach. Meet them where they're at testify of truth, and symbolically, at least in a ritual perspective, we've been in the council. If you've been to the temple, you've stood in the council, and you've covenanted with God to share the, the message. And so Joseph Smith said, he said, I would that all would be prophets. Remember that line? Yep. It's a great line. So I really like that, the Old Testament perspective. Spokesman, stands in the council, teaches truth. I really do like the idea of big P prophets and little P prophets. In other words, 
even though there's been a spokesman called, it doesn't mean that God won't hear my prayer and answer my prayer and give me hope. Can I address that, Mike? There's something I wanted to throw in. I love 3 Nephi 19 so much because the Savior comes and he encircles the big P prophets with fire and he gives them the Holy Ghost. And then he prays to the Father, and his prayer is so fascinating. So he's given the big P prophets the Holy Ghost, and then they, they, they glow like they're purified, right? And so then he prays, and he says to the Father, verse 21, Father, I pray thee that thou wilt give the Holy Ghost to all them that shall believe in their, meaning the big P prophet's words. So I gave the prophet, the big P prophet, the Holy Ghost, and all of you that listen to their words, I'll give the same Holy Ghost to you. And he does the same thing with that idea of being purified. So the, the, the 12 glow as if they are just purified. And then the Savior says the same, he gives that same prayer, verse 28. He says, Father, I thank thee that thou hast purified those whom I have chosen. And that's Russell Nelson and the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve. I thank thee that you have purified the big P prophets because of their faith, and I pray for them, and also for them who shall believe on their words, meaning all of us, the little P prophets, that we, Jesus says they, but I'm I'm applying it to ourselves, that we may be purified in Jesus through faith on their, meaning the big pre-prophet's words, even as they are purified in me. In other words, I am giving the Holy Ghost to the twelve, and if you listen to the twelve, I'll give the same Holy Ghost to you, and then you can be a prophet, big pre-prophet, little pre-prophet, and both of you have the Holy Ghost. There's nothing that comes into the life of a prophet that can't come into the life of any Latter-day Saint who follows the Lord's counsel that comes through the prophet. Therefore, I think coming out of that story is just that message, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to speak to them, they're going to speak to you, and if you obey their words, I'm going to give you all the blessings that I gave them. I'm going to give you the Holy Ghost, and I'm going to purify you like I purified them. So big P prophet, little P prophet. I think that you're absolutely right, Mike. Yeah. And I think sometimes we compare ourselves. We think, oh, I'm not, I'm not like that person. I love where Bonnie Corden said, she kind of talked about this. Um, she's the young women's general president. And I love where she says that Jesus met the woman at the well where she was. And then this woman became an example of Christ and a witness of who Jesus was. And then I love the quote where she says, these are great thousand watt examples, but I'm a 20 watt bulb. And her invitation was, ask yourself this question, who needs the light that you have to find the path that they need, but cannot see? So think about that. There's someone out there that can benefit from my 20 watt bulb. Yeah. And I love the fact that we have a 100 watt bulb that I can follow and obey and do better. And I love the fact that we have general conference so I can remember and I can see how bright the light is and I want to improve my light. And at the end of the day, we're not even the light. We're candlesticks. The book of Revelation talks about the servants in the hand of God that are candlesticks and it's really his light. And so I like that analogy, but at the same time, Jesus is the light. I really liked the quote by Elder Holland where he just talked about, he says, this is an all hands on deck war with COVID-19, but he says... When we have conquered it, and we will, 
May we be equally committed to freeing the world from the virus of hunger and freeing neighborhoods and nations from the virus of poverty and hope for safer schools. And, and he talks about the gift and personal dignity of every child. I really like that, first of all, because he gives us hope that it's going to be defeated. There's a lot of unknowns out there. But the one thing I do know is that the light of the world has a work for me and has a work for you. And Elder Holland says, many have deeply personal hopes in addition to these global desires, including things like marriage or overcoming an addiction or help for a wayward child or for physical or emotional pain to stop. Because the restoration reaffirmed the foundational truth that God does work in this world, we can hope, we should hope, even when facing the most insurmountable odds. We all need to believe that what we desire in righteousness can someday, some way, somehow, yet be ours. And I just want to add my witness to that. I, I see a lot of things in the scriptures um, spiritually, and sometimes I see them historically, and sometimes they're both to me, and sometimes I say, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I've had a lot of people recently say things like, do you think this is the end times? And I say, well, we're closer now than we were yesterday. Um, historically, I don't look at this pandemic the same maybe as some of my my peers. I, I just finished a book called The Great Influenza, and it the details in very technicolor terms what happened in 1918. And to me, this is nothing compared to that. The the influence of 1918 decimated between, you know, one and 7% of the world's population. It was horrible. And there was a world war on top of it. And so I'm grateful to live in this time period. And so whenever I, people ask me that, I say, I don't know. I don't know what to say, but I know this. I know that Jesus is the Christ and there's still work to do. And you know, follow the, follow the people that are saying things like stay home and be careful, wash your hands. But at the same time, I'm not walking around feeling like a chicken little. I don't think the sky's falling. And I, I really appreciate Elder Holland where he says, hey, when we've conquered it and we will, and then he talks about stuff we got to do. So I think, Bryce, we still got work to do. That was one thing I got out of this conference is and, there's stuff to do. And speaking of Elder Elder Holland, I, I am so grateful he quoted 2 Nephi 31. I've told my children many times, if I had to go to a desert island and could take one page of Scripture with me, i take 2 Nephi 31. That's the page, because to me, it's the greatest summary of the gospel you'll ever find. And I'm so grateful Elder Holland quoted. I've thought a lot about his quotation, I've gone back to 2 Nephi 31. So Nephi says, look, we get into the straight and narrow path when we open the gate of repentance and baptism. And that to me, that's membership of the church. We open the gate when we become members of the church. And then Nephi says in verse 19, I would ask you, is all done? Now that you've become a member of the church, is that the end or the beginning? Is becoming a member of the church the beginning of the journey or the end of the journey? Now, I know some people joining the church is the end of a very long journey, but joining the church is the beginning of another long journey. Joining the church is just the beginning. So what is the rest of your life supposed to be like? Once you make all the covenants you're, you're going to make for eternity. What is the rest of life for? And then verse 20, you must press forward one with a steadfastness in Christ. In other words, faith. Two, a perfect brightness of hope. Hope. And then three, a love of God and a love of man. How many speakers spoke about the, the two great commandments in general conference? Love God and love men. 
And Nephi summarized, here's the rest of your life. Once you join the church, here's what the rest of your life is for. You keep moving. Ready? You move forward with faith, hope, and charity. You move forward having faith in Christ, hope, and love of God and love of men. That's perhaps the greatest summary you're ever going to find. And, and going back to what we talked about in 2 Nephi, the Lord ends that verse with a great promise. If you're doing that when you die, thus saith the Father, you will have eternal life. What I got out of General Conference is that I'm not done with my faith, and I'm not done with hope, and I'm not done with charity. And there are people to love, and there are things to do, Therefore, move forward with faith in Christ. Don't let this pandemic get you down. Move forward with faith and hope and love of God and love of men. I just think that was such a beautiful summary of our lives. Faith, hope, and charity, and specifically the charity that we speak of in the two commandments, love God and love men. The last thing I want to talk about, obviously, faith and hope. I mean, I really heard that message a lot. Keep moving, keep going forward, have hope. I, I really think that's a message that we need today. And one of the uh, speakers, her name was Joy Jones, she said that we need to uh, increase our ability to receive revelation in, quote, a sin-sick world. And right when she said that, I thought, okay, now we're not just sick with physical things, but we have sin, and we have both, and we're struggling, and it's such a true thing. And she talked a lot about knowing that your path is approved of by God is such a key to having hope and strength. And it reminded me of the lectures on faith, where Joseph Smith said, hey, that's one of the key things. Know God, but then also know that you're on the right path. And then she said this, and this wasn't just Sister Jones that talked about this. Elder Oaks talked about this Saturday night as well, but this understanding of what the priesthood is priesthood is the power of God to do his work, and it's not specific to any gender. Priesthood is this idea of power. It's God's power given to his children to do his work. And Barbara Morgan's uh, written some things about this. And so priesthood power is when a sister or a brother does something that Christ would have them do. There's power in that. And so that being said, here's what Sister Jones says. She says, earlier in my life, I didn't realize that I had access through my covenants to the power of the priesthood. Sisters, I pray that we recognize and cherish priesthood power as we cleave unto our covenants, embrace the truths of the scriptures, and heed the words of our living prophets. And then Saturday night, and Elder Oaks has said this before, but Saturday night, Elder Oaks said, the men are not the priesthood. They hold priesthood offices, but they're not the priesthood. Priesthood is the power of God to do his work, and it's not specific to any gender. Now, the offices in the priesthood, those are given to men, but priesthood power is God's power to do his work his way, and it's something that is given to all of his children as they keep their covenants, right? Does that work with you? Yes. When we talk about priesthood, we should separate the four words, office, keys, authority, and power. So there are certain things that office holders can do. My son can pass the sacrament because he holds that office. And those who don't hold that office can't do those types of things. There's some things that come out of an office. But when a key holder gives me an assignment, whether I'm male or female, when a key holder gives me an assignment, he has authorized me in the priesthood to carry out that activity. So everyone who fulfills an assignment in this church is exercising priesthood authority. 
Which is pretty much most stuff that we do in the church. There's not a lot of key holders out there. No, there are very few key holders and relatively few office holders compared to the whole world. But anyone who fulfills an assignment in the church is exercising priesthood authority. Every sister missionary out there has been authorized. She is exercising priesthood authority. Though she doesn't hold an office and isn't a key holder, she exercises priesthood authority. And I think the point is, when you exercise priesthood authority, you get heaven's help. And you're entitled to heaven's help, and you should expect heaven's help, because you are surrounded by that priesthood. And the other word I love that they mentioned is power. I love the fact that we've been counseled recently to not use that in our blessings. When we lay hands on head, we're supposed to say, by the authority of the priesthood. Because power in the priesthood is very different. And I take you back to the Liberty Jail letter that Joseph Smith wrote. He says, many are called, but few are chosen. And the reason they're not chosen is because they haven't learned this lesson. We get caught up in what he says before that, that he said their hearts are set so much upon the things of the world and aspire to the honors of men that they do not learn this one lesson. I think Russell Nelson has been trying to teach this church this one lesson. And this is the lesson that the church still hasn't learned. The lesson is that power doesn't come from office. Power doesn't come from a key. Power doesn't come necessarily because you've been given an assignment. Power comes from righteousness. So I can be an authoritative missionary. I can go out and exercise authority because a key holder has given me the assignment. But whether or not I have power in the priesthood has to do with my righteousness. And anyone who is righteous can tap into the power of heaven, male, female, old or young, whether they're 12 or not. Member or non-member. Member or non-member. Anyone who is righteous can tap into... That's the lesson. And we're not learning that lesson. And until we learn that lesson, everyone is pleading. The brethren, the sisters, the leaders of the church are pleading with the members of the church to learn that lesson. That you exercise priesthood authority every time a key holder gives you an assignment. Every calling you have authorizes you to exercise the priesthood. When a, when a female stands up in sacrament meeting and gives a talk, she is exercising priesthood. And because she has authority, she has the right to power. And because she has authority, she should expect heaven's help. But her power comes from her righteousness. So recap those words again. You said there were four of them. I think there's four key words. Office, key, authority, and power. And understanding how those words work is so critical. Critical. So for example, a bishop who holds a key calls a primary president. She is now authorized to exercise the priesthood because a key holder called her. If she is righteous, she can tap into the power of the priesthood while she exercises the authority of the priesthood. So that primary president, being a female who doesn't hold an office, has authority and power if she lives in such a way that she claims that power. So when President Nelson is pleading for us to claim our privileges, I think he's saying when you are authorized to do it, move forward with the confidence of heaven 
because you are exercising the priesthood, and that priesthood is God's priesthood, and he will be with you. And if you live righteously, you can call upon the power of the priesthood. I wonder how many children were healed, not because the dad laid his hands upon the child as an exercise of an office, but because the mom lived righteously, and it was her power in the priesthood that brought the miracle, not to discount the blessing. But you know what I'm trying to say is sometimes we think, well, women can't lay their hands upon their children and give them a blessing, but we're not learning the lesson that power doesn't come from an office. Power comes from righteousness. It's such an important distinction. So I'm grateful. It was mentioned many times. Many times. And I was so surprised how many people said things like, oh, they're patronizing. And I thought, no, I think they're trying to draw distinctions. They're trying to do some teaching. And I really liked, and I don't remember which talk it was. I think it was on Sunday, but Elder Oak said, we're saddened when sometimes people remove their names from the church. And then he mentioned, it's a lot of times because they don't understand. They don't understand the doctrine or they don't understand a specific thing. And I think... A lot of times in my life, when I come across something that is troubling, I don't want to fly to pieces. I want to try to understand it. I want to try to pause and and ask Heavenly Father, help me to get through this, help me to understand this. And so I hope that maybe some of those messages uh, were valuable to you. I'm grateful that we could talk about some of these things today about conference. I, I certainly know there's a lot to cover, but those were some messages that really resonated with me, Bryce. They really kind of hit home for me. And I love the fact that two youth speakers spoke in general conference. I think one of the messages we need to hear is section 64, when you are moved upon by the Holy Ghost, then you can speak Scripture. Now, there's a difference between a youth speaker and an apostle. I get that. But their invitation to speak at general conference seems to suggest that when you study and when you seek the Holy Ghost in your preparation and stand up and speak— That Holy Ghost can teach truth, and truth can come whether or not you're listening to a youth or your own children or an apostle. And I hope that you tuned in to two messages. One was the message that was coming from the speaker, and the other was the message that was coming from heaven. And I hope you wrote down the messages that came from the speakers. My notes are filled with wonderful quotations and thoughts. But then I have pages and pages of notes that came to me from the Holy Ghost as speakers were presenting. And I hope you'll pay attention to that. I I just think that's the purpose of conference is to hear the speakers and then hear the message that comes to me personally from the Holy Ghost. Write them down. I would encourage you to write them down and refer to them often. Set a goal between now and October conference to do the things that the Holy Ghost whispered to your soul that you need to do as we need to work on the things that our leaders told us to work on. Work on the things that the Holy Ghost has suggested that you need to work on. I'll never forget as a boy hearing Spencer W. Kimball say this. It made such an impression on my mind At the very end, Spencer W. Kimball was the prophet at the time, and he was the final speaker at General Conference, and he stood up and said, we hope that the leaders and the members of the church who have attended and listened to the conference have been inspired and uplifted. We hope you have made copious notes of the thoughts that have come to your mind as the brethren have addressed you. 
Many helpful thoughts have been given for the perfection of our own lives, and that, of course, is the basic reason for our coming. Then a prophet said this, While sitting here, I have made up in my mind that when I go home from this conference this night, there are many, many areas in my life that I can perfect. I have made a mental list of them, and I expect to go to work on them as soon as we get through with the conference. I remember as a little boy hearing that, thinking, if the prophet made a list of things he needs to work on, then I need to make a list every time I listen to a conference of things I need to work on. I hope you heard both messages, messages that came from the speaker and messages that came from the Holy Ghost for you, telling, confirming the things that you are and that you have done. I hope you heard how pleased the Lord is with every righteous effort you make to please Him and to move forward. But I also hope the Holy Ghost talked to you about some things in your life that need to be improved. May we all get to work on them now that the conference is over. That's the reason we went to conference. I bear you my testimony that we are led by prophets, seers, and revelators. And for me, I can't believe how calming it was to see the face of the prophet shine through the darkness at General Conference. And you know, Bryce, for me, what really hit me was at the end when we were singing and the camera went to so many different nations. and In their language. Yeah. And it really hit me like the Lord is no respecter of persons and Lord loves the Lord loves all of his children. We thank thee, O God, for a prophet. That's what it was. Wasn't it? Yeah, that's what it was. Everyone was thanking the Lord for a prophet yeah. in their language. Yeah, that really hit me. I, for me, the Spirit testified to me that the Lord is mindful of all these people across the world, and He's mindful of who we are. And that was like a really awesome moment for me of just a feeling of peace, of things are going to be okay, and that the Lord is in charge. And I'm so grateful that the church is everywhere and that it's expanding. And when they said things like China and Dubai, and my thoughts were... Let's get it going. Let's let's keep it moving. I just I loved looking in their eyes and just seeing their love and their devotion, not just for Heavenly Father, but for the prophet that he sent. And I thought they love the same people I love. And it made me love them. Yeah. We're all in this together. I just thought that was such a beautiful moment to just see everyone singing. It's a good thing. The church is everywhere and it's continuing to grow and we're gonna be okay. And with that, we'll see you next time.